0: Uh, thank you, Jonathan, and uh, it's good to be with you all again as we uh, turn to God's Word. And I'd ask you, if you have a, have a Bible or whatever form you have, uh, the words of the Bible, to, to open it with me at uh, Mark chapter 9. I'm sure that many of you have seen some of these great ceremonial prayers, and particularly when there is a military element. And one of the things that impressed people is the precision of the marching. And, and you see them going to the beat and everyone's exactly in time. But occasionally you'll see one who's out of, out of step. And it's so incongruous, beside all this precision, here's this chap, out of order, out of step with all the rest. And in a sense that's something that we see in this particular narrative. People who are out of step with the Lord and what the way he would want them to go. Now this is a real a treasure chest of truth. There's so many elements in, in, uh, contained in this particular passage. We have time just to have a little cameo on each incident, of which there are four, and also to look at the instruction associated with the particular uh, incident. It's not only a journey that you're taking through geographically. It starts right up in the north of the country, Hermon, then moves slightly uh, to the south and to the east, to Capernaum, and then by Samaria, right back into Judea. That was quite a journey in those days. But what is even more significant is the spiritual journey which the Lord took these particular people and the impact or the effect it had on these. And the first part we see in this, the first part of the journey, we find in verses 30 and 31 of the ninth chapter. And this is as they're leaving the Mount of Transfiguration, Hermon, and they're on the way towards Capernaum. And we have these words, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. It was particularly for his followers that he was taking them on this journey. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And there we have the second of three occasions when the Lord mentions or announces his death. The previous one was in Caesarea Philippi, where uh, Peter had made that confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, after that point, when they'd come to recognize who he was and what he'd come to do, he, he then explained what that entailed. He was going to the cross, he was going to die on the cross, and he was going to raise again in the third day. And he mentioned that quite explicitly and clearly. Now here's the second occasion he mentioned it, and then the third occasion is found in the 10th chapter. But it's interesting what we are told here about the disciples and their reaction. They said, but they did not understand. Isn't that astonishing? He couldn't have put it more clearly. He couldn't have put it more simply. He was going to die. He was going to be delivered. In fact, there's a little nuance in the second announcement it's in the almost saying that this is already setting in motion. The die has been cast. Already the wheels are turning that it's going to take me to that death and to that resurrection. But the disciples didn't understand. They couldn't take it in. They couldn't grasp what he was saying. Now could he have put it any more straightforwardly or any more simply? I don't think so. Could he have put it any more succinctly or briefly? I don't think so. And yet they didn't understand And that's the amazing thing that we have here. Now the question arises for us, how was it? Or how could they not understand? What was the problem? Well, they had that age-old problem that many encounter concerning these things. Cultural conditioning. conditioning, Or traditional thoughts so entrenched in people's hearts and minds that when they hear a certain truth, somehow or other there's a veil over their minds. There's a block to their understanding. They, they can't take it in. And what the situation was with these Jewish people in connection also with the other people was their view of the Messiah. The one who was to come. And they saw the Messiah coming as the conquering one. The one who would come in sovereignty. The one who would break the power of the Romans, liberate them and the nation would be free again. And they had that drummed into their hearts and minds again and again and again. That was their only conception, their only view of the Messiah. They could not conceive of a suffering Messiah. It was like talking about a square circle, as far as they were concerned. And then also in the Jewish thinking, they had the idea of resurrection, but there was only one resurrection. It was the resurrection that would take place at the end of history when this, this world's uh, history was going to be brought to an end, then there'd be a great resurrection. They had no concepts of a resurrection before that time, and they certainly didn't have any concept of a personal resurrection of a person. So you can understand that they just couldn't take it in. They, 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 they couldn't uh, do that. And it's amazing how people's minds can be conditioned by their cultural backgrounds. Dr. Alan Stibbs, was a great Anglican preacher and theologian. And he relates an occasion. He went to preach in a church and he knew the congregation. So he said that he was going to choose a text that was clear, that was explicit, and he was sure would meet the needs of the people. It was Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he took each one of those statements one by one. It's by grace, unmerited favour. You can do nothing to earn it. Nothing, None of your uh, your accomplishments, none of your performance, none of your acts, none of your rituals can contribute to it. And he explained that carefully. And then he went through each one. And he thought he had been really explicit and clear. And no one could leave the place in any sort of doubt about what he was meaning. At the end of the service, a lady shook his hand and said, Thank you very much, Dr. Stibbs. And so he felt quite gratified. It's got through. She said, that's exactly what my late husband will leave. Do your best and God will do the rest. He said, I couldn't believe it. I said everything that was contrary to that. And yet her mind was so thought that somehow or other you have to work for your salvation. You have to do something. And that was so ingrained, entrenched in her mind, she couldn't even receive the truth. She couldn't understand it. Isn't it amazing? And often you find that with Jehovah's Witnesses. I got to know a Jehovah's Witness in the church where I was pastor, he wasn't in the church, he lived in the area. And after a while, we formed a sort of relationship on a certain level. And so I took him to Revelation chapter 1, where it says about Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he said, I said, who's that referring to? And he said, Oh, that's Yah, Jehovah, Jehovah God. I said, Well, that's good. I took him to the 22nd chapter, the last chapter. And says, I am Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. I'm coming in clouds. I said, who's coming in clouds? He said, Jesus. I said, what does that make Jesus? He said, well, I know what it's saying, but I can't mean that. (laughs) So ingrained was the thought that Christ was not God, even though he couldn't give any other explanation. He couldn't reason in any shape or form. He could not accept it. Can you see the disciples? situation. Now I hope I don't tread in anyone's toes, but it's my personal experience. And, uh, I was brought up in the church with a church where they're Pedo baptists The only baptism that took place was the sprinkling of infants, known personally infants. That's the only thing I ever saw. That's the only thing I knew about baptism. I'd witnessed it hundreds of times in the church. And so when I was reading the Bible and I saw the word baptism, the thought that came in my mind was that Christ was a child. with a little bit of water sprinkled on them even though the context would be quite different it was about an adult, I still had that image in my mind. Even though uh, uh, it would talk about repent and uh, and being baptised, I still had that thought in my mind of of a child. And so when I actually read into the scripture, rather than taking out from the scripture what was written in the scripture. I want to use that by way of an illustration to show how our cultural conditioning can actually affect what we hear and what we read uh, when we come to the word of God. And that was a condition of the, of the disciples. And I just put it to you as I put it to myself. Do we always clearly take in what's written? Or are we really looking for what we think should be written according to our life? There's a real danger therefore, for us that we don't actually listen to what God has said in his word. We rather superimpose our own thoughts. But what comes next? is even more significant. You notice what is said here about these. He, he, they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Isn't that astonishing? They wouldn't ask. They wouldn't ask about it. Surely if a person, well, it's the Lord speaking. If he's saying something that's significant, It's saying something about him which is fundamental, something that's momentous, nothing else like it, and who didn't understand, surely the obvious thing would be to ask, What do you mean, Lord? Explain to us. They, they did it other times, they asked Him, but they didn't ask. It said they were afraid. Now, maybe they had in the back of their mind, when the Lord first announced that on the first occasion He was going to die and rise again, Peter then said, Not so, Lord, that's not going to happen. And the Lord rebuked Him and said, Get behind me, Satan. And maybe they thought, Oh, maybe He'll rebuke us. Peter wasn't asking him what he meant. Peter was actually trying to exercise authority over Christ and tell him what he should do. That's why he's rebuked and said, get behind me. Know your place, Peter. It's not for you to say these things. Whenever you see people who honestly ask the Lord a question, he never failed to answer them. When anyone, whoever it was, whatever their background, when they ask a question, he invariably took time to answer them, even when they were wrong. He took time. When I worked in an office, uh, uh, occasionally a thing would come round, and there would be a big stamp on it. You would what said? If in doubt, ask. They knew the danger of people who didn't understand, taking action, or, or establishing some course of action when they didn't understand. If in doubt ask. And that's what the disciples should have done then. How out of step they were with the Lord. And it's easy for us to be there. Maybe we don't understand. But have we ever asked? Have we ever asked him? Have we ever asked another person? There was a thing that I mentioned before when there was the AIDS epidemic in this country and the big slogan was don't die because of ignorance ask and I'd say dear friends if you're here today maybe you're not clear about whether you're a Christian or you understand salvation I I encourage you ask Christ is longing for you to ask when I was uh, in charge of a mission church in Belfast and I remember distinctly, and it was quite a large work. And there was an elderly lady, and she was at the prayer meeting, and the Bible study, and there every Sunday. Uh, and she was such a saintly character. And as I was visiting her home over a period of time, we got to know one another. And then she said to me one day, could I ask you something? She said, I've never asked anyone about this in my life. And I have carried this burden on my heart. I'm not sure whether I truly belong to Christ. She'd been attending that place from her child, and she'd sat in that place. Uh, and she wanted to, to, to believe, and she wanted to know that she was truly had come to the Lord and she had eternal life. And she carried that question with her and the burden of her just because she'd never ask. Can I ask you, dear friend? Dear friends, have you asked? Whatever the spiritual problem is, whatever the thing that's nagging in your mind, whatever the dilemma you might have in your thinking, ask. That's what they should have done. That's what it means to keep in step with the Lord when you follow what he wants us to do. And then the, the leads us on to the next incident, which we have here in this uh, particular narrative. They came to Capernaum when he was in in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Because they kept they kept quiet because on the way they argued who was the greatest. Can you think of anything more incongruous? Here was the Lord speaking about his self abandonment to his father's will, to his abasement, going to the cross. In our place, in our state. To die for sinners who doubt, deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And know what they were talking about. Self-aggrandizement, position and so forth. Can you imagine it? It's incredible. Surely you would have thought when they heard these words. He who deep down they loved. He who had done so much for them. He who had called them. He who had blessed them. He who had open, opened up his heart to them. When they heard what he was going to do. Their thoughts would have been focused entirely on him. Absolutely. you would have thought their whole being. Would have been centred on him. Instead. They are actually. Focused on themselves. And who will be the greatest. Who will have the highest. And the best position. Isn't it amazing. How even those. Who are Christ's followers. And his disciples can be so out of kilter with him and his mentality and what he's doing. And yet this is what we have here. Why did this arise? I only speculate. You remember this was after the transfiguration. And the Lord took Peter, James and John up with him, And they saw him transfigured before them. His inner incandescence just shone out. His glory just overwhelmed them. The brightness, the wonder of it. And the Lord says, now, don't tell anybody. And of course, they've come down. I can imagine the other disciples saying, ah, what happened up there? And them saying, ah, can't tell you. <laughs> That's for me to know, for you to guess. There's a way of answering a question where you actually make a person feel worse, isn't it? <laughs> and I can imagine, who do they think? And then maybe they're arguing, well, we've been up the mountain. We've had the experience. We've seen the glory. Surely we will have the premier spots. Not realising when God gives a tremendous blessing it's meant to humble. Not to lift us up and give us pride. It was an honour for them to be there. It was a privilege that should be granted to them. Not for self-promotion and pride. But to sense, who are we? That we should be granted such a thing. Maybe it was something that, like that. And, they are. and then they ask, here's the question. What were you talking about? What a question. What a searching question. What were you talking about? On the way. He knew... And you notice there was silence? There's plenty of talk about their own self-promotion. But when they're confronted by the one who is humbling himself and going to humble himself even to the death of the cross and he asks, why was the silence? Why was there silence? Was it guilt? I think so. Was it shame? I believe so. It suddenly hit home. In this situation, in those circumstances, we were talking about us being great at position. When he was telling us he heard the right for position and place and justly so was going to give it up for their sakes and our salvation. When I read those words, it came home to me another way. One of the Lord came to us and we've had a conversation to people or with people and he said to us what were you talking about? How would we feel? Shame? guilt?" I wonder sometimes in our church meetings our business meetings and he came after we've had our discussions and he, came and he said what were you talking about? Sadly, I've known church meetings where they spent an hour discussing what colour the doors were. And hardly five minutes about preaching others with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in our leaders meeting, what were, what were you talking about? Was it fundamental? Was it service? Was it ministry? Was it God-glorifying activity? What were you talking about? And so here's this a searching question which he puts, in spite of the anomaly of, of that whole situation and the, the silence. What it would test, what a test would be, to indicate to us whether we're in step with the Lord, how we speak, and what we speak about these things. And so that the Lord then uses this situation. He, he takes this opportunity. And you notice what he said here? They came, and when he was in the house, he asked him the question. And then significantly, he says, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. Now, the, the, when a rabbi was going to teach officially, when well, it was something of moment, something really significant, he would sit down. That was the posture of a teacher. It's almost like ex-cathedra. He's on the throne, and he's is issuing... Uh, uh, what he, he wants to have done that's, that's the, the, the posture uh, and so then he, he gives this instruction about what is greatness now the Lord wasn't sort of denying greatness but what he was doing was redefining it and describing it according to his walk and his principles rather than those which obtained in the world and, and, and you find he, he, he does that sitting down, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all this is what our Lord was saying to them Here, here is greatness the one who's prepared to be last and to be a servant of all you know if we're going to have true spiritual greatness you know where we work in the servants quarters I know in the servants quarters they're just waiting for the bell to ring in order to answer it and respond to it and comply with, with what, what is uh, what is asked of them. And that's where every believer should be in the servants' quarters, waiting, longing, desiring for the bell to ring and to answer the, the, the master's the master's call. And, and if you notice, he then goes on to illustrate uh, the instruction which he, he, he gave. He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, You know, what a, can you picture the sight? He's a little child. It's not a child that was specially chosen or groomed for the occasion or, or one with special abilities. He just took this little child. In Romania, in the times of Ceausescu, Czartescu would like to be on the television and, and he would have a child in his arms that child had been taken off their parents 12 weeks previously to make sure it didn't have any disease or any viruses and the child was absolutely scrupulously clean in every respect and dressed in the appropriate way so Ceausescu could, could hold them this wasn't a special child this was any child a young child and he took him now, like, the likelihood is this encounter took place in Peter's mother-in-law's house or in Peter's mother's house. That was uh, sort of headquarters in Capernaum. And there's the possibility the child was Peter's son. Now, if he was a chip of the old block, he was probably a rascal, wasn't he? He probably was. Knowing, knowing Simon Peter, probably was that. And one thing: how children were viewed. A rabbi would disdain or refuse to teach a child under 12. It was beneath him. Who were they? That's why when the Lord went to the temple at the age of 12 the people were astonished at his wisdom and his questions unanswered. The children were just ignored. They were to be seen and not heard. They were looked upon as a liability. I remember one preacher rather foolishly asked the children of the congregation for um, uh, tips for children's talks and they were asked to put into the box, a little box that, and, uh, there was only one piece of paper uh, and the preacher opened it and said, what is a boy? Sometimes, some child said, what is a boy? And they thought, well how do you do that? You know, I can tell physically, but how do you explain it? So he went to one of the mothers, it was Monday morning, she was doing the washing and he said, tell me what is a boy? A boy is a person who makes volumes of washing. (laughs) And had all these things. But in those days, boys were looked upon, and children were looked upon as a liability. They had nothing to offer. They had nothing to contribute. They did nothing. I know it's quite different from our society, but that's the way they would have thought. And so it was astonishing when the Lord takes this child and holds it in his arms. And they said, here, what does this be like? He took a child and he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What a thing. If you're going to be a real servant, you take those that are ignored, those who don't bring any kudos, those who don't make any contribution, those who are marginalized. Those are, those are the people you, you receive and you welcome. He said, that's what it is. The person who's self promoting, oh, well, so and so, they can do something for us. They can give this. They can add that. And it's really for their glorification. But those who can't add anything, who can't bring anything except their problems, he said, that's the servant's heart. That's the heart of God. Are real we, are, are we servants. Someone has put it like this way. He said, Would you go to a shop to buy things when the shop owner has no interest in their customer? Would you have a friend and that friend always looked upon you as just a spare part whenever he had nothing better to do? If you were looking for a soldier, would you want one who's only interested in self preservation? And his own welfare. Would you? He said, Well, the same holds good for the kingdom of God. It's only those who who will serve. It's only those who are really concerned for the well being of others. Only those who are willing to give themselves are fit for the service of the king and the service of the kingdom. That's the situation that's brought here. And don't you find it with our Lord? The Lord spoke with women. That was not a done thing. And the woman of Samaria, this repugnant woman that most people would have avoided, He speaks with her and treats her with such dignity. He touched lepers. Nobody touched a leper. That was a no-no, but He touched them. He He met with those who were regarded as sinners and tax collectors. All those who were marginalised, and He did it was one of the things that people noticed about him how he ministered to all those <coughs> the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27 and was after they had been shipwrecked in the boat and it was through the help and the information that Paul gave the boat was saved the crew and all the all the passengers they were all saved because of Paul. what a celebrity you must have seen Anyone ever shipwrecked? You know what Paul was doing? When they came ashore, he was gathering sticks in order to make the fire. The celebrity, gathering fathers. That's the heart of the service. And here the Lord makes this clear. But he says, Oh, he elevates service. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones. In my name, those who are in that condition, in those circumstances, whatever there is, welcomes me. What a society, and not only that, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Those who are welcome, those who receive, those who have nothing to offer, those who can do nothing for us, and we just welcome them. We're keeping company with heaven. That's what we're called to. We're chosen to be soldiers in, in this band, servants in, in 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 this service. So we move then on to the next thing, forbidding one to cast out demons. And here's the next thing that they're out of step, this misguided zeal, misunderstanding Christ's ministry. Now, don't get it wrong here. This was not a question of doctrine or of truth. They were exercising the demons in the name of Christ. The, the, in the person of Christ. He was someone who recognised the authority that Christ had and only Christ had. And he was functioning on that basis. And then it was on a, a basis of, of the, the ministry wasn't an acceptable one. Or one that shouldn't be engaged in. This is what our Lord came to do. Destroy the works of the devil. And they had given his followers the power, wherever they were, to do that. So it wasn't because of doctrine, it wasn't because of the nature of the, of the ministry. You know what they told? They were not one with us. Teacher, we saw this one and we forbade him. Because he was not one of us. Oh how easy it is uh, to misunderstand the Lord's ministry. And the nature of it. Just because he didn't just follow the way we followed Or the way in which we did it. And they forbid him. And notice what the Lord says. And it's emphatic. It's an imperative. He says do not stop him. Desist immediately. From doing that particular thing. And how often. The cause of the kingdom. Has been affected by others. Who want to stop those. Who are doing good. I remember in Moldova. It's a very poor country and for the first time there was going to be what they called a house of mercy built by Christians it wasn't happening in Moldova Uh, this was such an innovation that the government sent a minister the mayor from the local town came the television was there I remember the day it was opening and the orthodox priest approached the mayor and said why did you give these people land to build that you should have stopped them isn't it amazing he had no intention of doing that but just because they were not his party they didn't walk in his way he would far rather that the poor suffered and the neglected would still be neglected and the aged would be suffer a deprivation rather than someone else doing it it's so easy to have a party spirit when it comes to the kingdom oh yes the people are teaching false doctrine That has, we don't want it to go on that people are misrepresenting the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and doing things that are not acceptable. But if they're doing the Lord's work in the Lord's name, how are we ought to encourage them. How are we ought to encourage them. And very often it is those who perhaps are new to the faith, who haven't learned all our ways and all our various ways of doing things, that oftentimes the most zealous they've come to see this. Remember a dear lady who came to council, and she started to come. And she came to know the Lord. And she told me what she did. She said, I thought I had to share my faith with my husband. So she said, I want you to sit down and tell you something. And he sat down. I'd got to know the man, he was a real gentleman. She said to him, I want to tell you, you are no longer first love in my life. His <laughs> eye almost popped out. he almost had a shock. Now, what she was trying to say, Christ was the first love. I said, do you think it did right? <laughs> I said, well, maybe I wouldn't put it in a slightly different form. But could I tell her to stop witnessing? She said to me, I want to book a row in the church. I said, we don't book rows. She said, I want to book a row. I said, what for? She said, I want to fill it with my family. And by God's grace, she did And her husband's the first. Two sons afterwards. A daughter. Sister-in-law and brother-in-law. Who are you? It would have been to say, oh you shouldn't talk like that. And squash that that faith. My dear friends. The Lord is taking them along. And wanting us to be big hearted. When it comes to the work of the gospel. Because he's got a big heart for the world. He really has. And is goes on to elaborate that my time has come, but I will just uh, mention the last, the last one, and here others are out of step with the Lord. I only mention this briefly in the, uh, uh, to bring to conclusion what we want to say today. And these are people who are all concerned about divorce uh, and the grounds for being divorced. And you know what the Lord did immediately. Not only did He turn to Scripture. But he focused on marriage. He said, all oh, you want to talk about divorce and what grounds you might have, what reasons or basis you might have for being it. He said, I want to tell you focus your thought on God's purposes, the maker's instruction, and it's all on a relationship, a special relationship between a man and a woman. But doesn't it show you even those who are religious can be out of step. Not in kilter kilter, uh, with the purposes of Christ. Just to conclude and there's the passage where the Lord speaks very strongly uh, about the effects of certain people and uh, the impact that they'll have. And and he goes on to say about uh, the millstone and amputation of the the, the arm and the foot and plucking out the arm. What is he doing there? What is the Lord doing by saying that? He wants to bring home to us how seriously we should treat this teaching. He wants to bring home to us the magnitude of what's involved in keeping in step with him. And the the terrible consequences of being out of step with him And so he uses this graphic language. He's saying to some people, make sure you're in step because your eternal destiny is at stake. That could be true for us. If our views are not clear and certain about Christ and of our need of him and the necessity of trusting and committing our lives to him, Our eternal destiny can be at stake. That's why we need to take these things seriously. Don't stay in a state of confusion or uncertainty. Don't remain in that state where you've got questions, but you're frightened to answer. Maybe this is the day for asking. That's important. Our unity can be at stake you notice how the Lord ends that particular section and he says to be at peace with one another if we're promoting self and self is the big thing and we've got a party spirit about our cause and the way things are doing that brings lack of unity that brings disunity and that's all the more reason why we should have that spirit of not being just interested in our own things, but in the things of others, as the Paul puts it. And in our ministry and influence, he said if the salt loses its its saltiness, what good is it? That's its function. That's the reason for its existence. And if these things if were to step with Christ in his things, then we're going to lose that saltiness. That influence that we have and can have. How we need to pray, as the new writer puts it. Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Help me to see your footsteps and there safely to plant my own. Lord, help me to see your footsteps. This plant own. I was doing some advances in a place called Street near Sutton Cole Field. And I went to a door, it was an elderly gentleman. He turned out to be an old soldier, a real old soldier, a lovely gentleman. Uh, and they invited me in, and again I went back a few times and, and then he told me about when he was called up. It was in the Second World War. And he was forty. he was almost forty three. I think he was forty two in nine months. If you were forty three you couldn't be called up. And he said, he said, they sent me to the commando regiment. He said, I couldn't even climb, or I couldn't even run between the obstacles, never mind climb them. And, and uh, uh, he was sent to the medical officer of health, health uh, 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 in, the, uh, in the army. And he said, they've sent you to the commando regiment? He said, I knew things were bad, but I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> He said, Well, as a reprieve, they put me in mine clearance. That was a real blessing, wasn't it? Yeah, I said, What do you do? He said, I remember one day, and we had to clear this field for the infantry to advance. And he said, My commanding officer, my commanding officer said, I'm going through first. He said, Now I want you to do something. I want you to place your foot Where I had my foot. He said, I don't want you to deviate. I said, Did you do it? He said, I did. And he said, I didn't deviate a millimeter. He knew his security depended on his well-being. And he also knew the well-being of the soldiers who were going to go through that field. He just said, I never deviated. Dear friends, is that our attitude? We look at the Master's way. Our Saviour steps. His footfall. And we just want to pray, oh God, by your grace, help me to put my feet in there. Help me. Forgive me where I've gone my own way. Forgive me when I've strayed from your way. But help me today to go that particular way. In conclusion, during the American War of Independence there were some soldiers trying to move a tree and George Washington came along with his horse and they could see that they were doing well but they were beaten. And they saw another man standing by. They said to man, why don't you help them?" The chap said, I'm an officer, I give the commands, the men do it. Washington got off a horse, rolled up his sleeves, joined with the men, and they moved the tree. And then he was going, he said, if you need any further help, uh, just get in touch. I'd be very pleased to help. And the officer said, sir, where might I find you? He said, come to the commanding officer's tent, and you'll find me there. Commander-in-chief, gets of his horse rolls up as slaves and joins in the task so it can be achieved no wonder Washington became the first president he who would be first must be last and a servant of all my dear friends that's nothing he who is the Lord of glory in heaven took upon himself humanity And being found in the fashion of a man. Became a servant. And even as a servant. He became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. If that's the way our commanding officer has been. And he is. Surely. We who are going to be true servants of him. Will walk the way the master walked. <coughs> Thank God the Lord patiently, graciously led these men through that journey and may he lead us through our journey in order we might not be out of step. I'm going to conclude by singing a song Uh, Entitled The Servant King. And it just sets out before us the nature, the character, and the ministry work of our Lord Jesus Christ as Servant King.